0: On the second episode of the Ranch and Range podcast, I had a really cool conversation with Michaela Wright. She lives in Snohomish, Washington. She completely transformed her life and has taken a deep dive into agriculture. Um, a fascinating part of this conversation about agriculture analytics, especially a lot on the sales side, um, her work with horsemen, horses, and um, her investments in other women pursuing paths in agriculture. I had no idea what I was in for, but I asked Michaela to come on the podcast, and I'm so happy that she was our second guest. Just an incredible conversation. Had my head turning the entire time. Um, I hope you all enjoy this Ranch and Range podcast just as much as I did, because I thought it was pretty awesome. We're almost there. One, There we go. We're on the air.
1: Oh, where are we broadcasting to?
0: We're on LinkedIn. Sweet. Facebook. Sweet. And YouTube.
1: Awesome. Let's do this.
0: And we're going to talk about beef and alternative proteins. And um, this is Michaela. Hey, I've everyone. Reading, I've been reading her stuff on LinkedIn. Um, it's amazing. So I would suggest everybody look her up online. I put her uh, LinkedIn profile and website in the show notes. So um, I I can't believe I missed Listening to her all, or reading all her comments and everything for this long, and uh, um, so I really appreciate her. And as soon, I think I've been following her for about a, maybe two months now. And uh, when I started the Ranch and Rain po- podcast, as like this is a person I need to get on. So, um, and I just recorded a podcast with some uh, with a uh, with Shannon that does Big Food Big Future. Yes. Proteins. So um, I thought it was a real fun one. And I've been talking about it. So, but I think we need to clear something up. Michaela is from Snohomish, Washington. Is that correct?
1: That is correct.
0: Can you give everybody a little lowdown about how beautiful a place Snohomish, Washington is and how fortunate you are to live there?
1: Okay. So Snohomish is about 45 minutes northeast of Seattle. And um, it is very green uh, most of the year. Um, and it is very rainy most of the year. <laughs> so I, I, I love living here. Um, discovered it a couple years ago from work trips from my previous life and um, just decided that because of COVID, I had to not live in California anymore and simply go live where I loved. And so I moved here and it's awesome.
0: Yes, it's uh, called it the City by the River. It has some really crazy good Italian spots, but it has probably one of the best scotch bars on all of the West Coast. I don't know if it's still there, but it's it called the River End. All the great Pacific microbrews, really great hamburgers, and just this wall of scotch that's absolutely amazing.
1: I don't know if it might. It might you know what? Yeah, I think that is still there. Yeah. It's on the right hand side of the street, riverbank. Yeah, that's there.
0: Yep. <laughs> and then they have these little great seafood places along the river. It's
1: yes, good. all those are still there.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so I lived at the, I lived, I, we uh, did a mobile catering company for the wildfires and uh, like breast cancer walks.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And we were headquartered for a brief time out of the Snohomish Airport, which is a weird place. Wow. But it's how it worked out. Yeah. And we redid a hangar to be our office.
1: That is awesome. Some of so. that's been seriously developed into McMansions. The airport's still there. There's still planes. Um, there's a couple of little drive through coffee shops. And there's a weed dispensary, too. Oh, good. <laughs> I know, right?
0: <laughs> the thing about Snohomish is you can get out and be on farms within... Just a couple minutes of leaving Snohomish. There's some really good farms. I mean, there's been a lot of development, but I know that there's still there's well, still a little bit of farming hanging on there.
1: There, you know, more than a little bit. Snohomish County is very much pro agriculture. Um, and nothing against other counties within Washington, but depending on proximity to the city, others have kind of more gone the way of being development friendly just because of growing population, while others have been much more. Um, sticklers for preserving land that's used to produce and raise food so i'm I'm actually really lucky to be there and because that's exactly what I encounter so some of the the more vibrant operations like Stoker farms is still there um you know they they've got a good foothold and the county's really really mindful about development and zoning because there's just in terms of, Land conservation to raise and produce food, but also maintain our environment and you know not have you know lessen the impact of development on rivers and waterways. It's it's you know it's one of the things I really appreciate about them. Um, so it's it's also one of the reasons I chose to you know start my little my little operation there because there's um, there it's it's been a little bit easier to navigate as. A beginning farmer and or and I wouldn't call myself a rancher yet, even though there are officially three cows sitting in the pastures today. Um, I know I'm pretty excited about that. I was like, OK, there's no going back. Um, <laughs> and and just in terms of even supporting, you know, women and 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 things like that. So it's a great place to be really great farming community, but even the people that are newer transplants that are kind of leaving the city, they're, they're, they're very tolerant of, you know, the, the more long residents as well as the production space. So, you know, while some people have these jarring juxtapositions between new development and an influx of population, Snohomish has been, I feel it's just been a little bit more balanced because, you know, it's very clear. It's like, yes, you bought a house next to cows. There is going to be smells, <laughs> yes. you know,
0: <laughs> which was a big article on the the capital press about three weeks ago but in the idaho fruitland thing is the juxtaposition between uh development and agriculture and yeah people escaping the city and then being disturbed that they were uh so close to actual farm animals and agriculture and stuff so I think in some places it is a real hard transition, but I've noticed that the outskirts of Seattle, I think it's culturally embedded that um, they're very supportive of farmer market um, co-ops. It's just sort of that uh, that 60s holdover um, mentality that has really and they were able to keep it, they were able to keep it alive and still make it work. And I think it's coming back around in a big swing this time. So.
1: Yeah. And I think that the new, uh, the new nuance of that is a lot of the, um, you know, as some, as some of the people that work for the tech companies have grown older and built families, they've been moving farther out. So now what I've been seeing are, you know, the ranches that go up for sale or larger lot developments go up, they're buying them. And, and whether it's the already, it's ready to go, or if there's something they bought land and they're developing, you know, and now they're trying to learn how to navigate being like, I just say, what do you call them? Like homesteaders, uh, kind of like. Uh, yeah. Small scale, which is really cool, um, because there are still tax incentives and breaks, and so that's been a, a new conversation I've had with a lot of people. They're like, "Well, how do I tell? You know, like how do I meet this qualification? How do I do this?" So even um, this fall, I'm gonna, I call it um, horses on your homestead, even though we're gonna go way further than that. Where I'm gonna do a class about, um, you know, like the basics of of uh, conservation as it relates to Mostly the valley is about, you know, what's flowing into our rivers because, you know, everything's critical to our salmon populations, which I'm not as versed on. Like I haven't gotten into fish yet. Um, But, you know, talking about, you know, uh, mitigating erosion, you know, um, just kind of like um, general land use and health, how to if they want to lease their land to uh, producers, whether it's food or if it's, you know, livestock for meat, it's like how to navigate those deals, things that you need to know about county regulations. And many of them seem to be getting horses and goats. So we're going to go deep into, here's what you need to look for. Here's how you make sure your goats don't die. You know, so, but you know, that's, I thought I'm like, wow, this is going to be a really fun group to work with and to teach them some of the fundamentals that I learned when I was first getting into this about four years ago. And, um, you know, hopefully just, you know, that was my hybrid because some people don't like them buying the land. And then, um, you know, it's like they, the tech, the horse, it's like the farmers don't like the horse people buying land, but the horse people don't like the tech people buying land. Like, you know, there's a lot of this, I'm like, um, this, like, don't like of certain someone acquiring land or something. So I'm kind of what we've been designing for with our little group is just, you know, holding educational classes of like, hey, you've done this. Here's how to navigate that. Hey, you want to raise your own meat? Well, here's how you butcher a rabbit or a chicken and or here's what you need to maybe can take into consideration if you're going to get larger animals. Maybe you don't do that and, you know, lease your land to someone who can and you learn. So really I think it's more about encouraging dialogues between different people and different stages of, of um, putting something into production and kind of helping just build understanding of one another's viewpoints and everything. Cause there is, you know, it's, it's, it can be pretty, hairy sometimes i know i'm personally lucky to lease what i have from people that have been you know ranchers for 30 plus years so we see eye to eye on most things you know it's it's not been a problem but even that took me over a year to find you know because it's not it's not as easy you know um it's very hard to find usable land out here especially if it's going to come to animals yes veggie's not so hard but when you want to put like beasts, it whole different ball game.
0: Yep. <laughs> whole different uh, set of parameters that you need. So what was the onus for this transition in your life? What was the catalyst that made you say, I'm gonna dive into agriculture with both feet?
1: So actually it was something that I did four years ago and I only started um really talking about a two years ago. Um I lived in Los Angeles. I'd worked in film and entertainment and music, loved it, but was very burnt out. And honestly, um, I was vegan, ate raw and followed every dietary fad trend you can imagine. I I literally juiced half my meals. I was very thin and I developed an autoimmune disorder. I'm like, wait, I'm the healthiest person in the world, quote unquote. Why am I sick? Why am I have no energy? Blah, 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 blah. And so I'm like, you know what? I'm going to learn about my food because I think that there's something there. And maybe the, this isn't the right um, dietary lifestyle for me. So what I thought was going to be learning some basics of nutrition fell into a whole different ballpark um, of I ended up moving up to a farm that I'd been staying at as an Airbnb over the years. And I, you know, I've said, I'll pay you to live here and I want to learn and work from you. And she was like, you pay me to live here and you do free labor. When are you moving in? <laughs> um, yeah. And I'm telling you, it was cool. So it was everything from soiled health to orchard management. It wasn't a very large place, but they had, you know, 60 animals. And um, he, her husband was a longtime dairyman. And she'd grown up in, in the valley doing multiple different roles. And they were, you know, they were really amazing people. So, um, you know, it's, you know, I went from, I think the first week, I learned to castrate goats. Second week, I learned to butcher a pig. And uh, by the third week, I was eating meat again, ate goat (laughs) and pork for six weeks straight. And I'm like, oh, my energy levels are better. Oh, I feel more coherent. So um, I, you know, being able to participate in raising my food and growing my food firsthand completely, I mean, I, I shattered my own world in learning how it was done. I mean, of course, this isn't large scale. This is just learning this was this was small right this was just what people an average country ranch would do from what i was learning and i was just really really lucky and i and i fell in love with it so um i took soil i went back to school and i took a soil a soil science classes i took a nutrition science class via stanford like Like, just because I was like, we have this so wrong. Like, I I, honestly, I keep saying we've taken something inherently simple and made it so complex. And then we've added many layers of dysfunction to it. Um, (laughs) I think, no, seriously, people can eat and choose to eat how they want. Um, Whatever's right for them is right for them. But for me, I like, I'm like, I just love to raise, you know, raise what I uh, what I eat and there's, there was just, there's something very, there's some, I just found a lot of peace in it. So, um, learning about different things. And then, you know, I, I went to a few larger operations to learn more about hogs and goats. And while I'm not in any means by, by any means an expert, you know, I can, I can hold my own in you know, managing what goes on my plate. Um, so yeah, I. Sorry about that. I realized my phone was on. So that's that's kind of how I got into this. And then, as I you know, said, like volunteering, learning firsthand, and I think that led to knowing that there are so many ways to produce no one way is right. I think there's, there's many factors that go into it, whether it's state law, uh, county, county regulations, tribal, uh, tribal law as it relates to water rights. So, you know, the, the one thing that's common amongst any farm large or small is that there, it takes a lot to put food on someone's plate and, it's a very humbling experience. And, you know, just so you know, I was working full time uh, consulting and um, while doing this, so it was like farm work, farm. And I did that for two years. And again, then I was like, okay, well, I'm ready to do this, start talking about this more, doing this on a wider scale. And um, now, because one of my core competencies was always data and analytics um, for what I did for work. I'm like, you know what, every time I talk to a producer that, you know, there's a lot of common themes that come up. And so now I'm doing, you know, analytics and data for agriculture. I just finished a um, a really cool project for a company called for a nonprofit called the good meat breakdown, um, which is out of Portland. That's Adam Danforth and Camus Davis, which everybody knows who Adam is if you're a butcher and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing where I'm like, Oh, they're just going to need a little help. But I'm like, Oh no. Um, by the time you talk to them and see what's under the hood, you're like, I can visualize all this. So that's what I did. And I've started working on a few other, um, meat uh meat related projects that I can't discuss yet but you know there's there's many applications of data so whether it's hr or operations one of my one of the people I'm working with, I'm like, oh my gosh, you have all this information on your animals, like from birth to harvest. Um, can we put that in Excel sheet and see what I can do to kind of dimensionalize that, that life cycle. And maybe that's of use to you in a wider context for marketing and, or education. So people have a better understanding of how well you treat these animals that are our food, but we are not doing any of these things that people say like, Pumping them full of hormones, beating the crap out of them. Excuse my language, but it's just yeah. anyway. So, so that's what it came from. Full circle. I wanted to eat better, and I fell down a rabbit hole, and I loved it. And now I, I, I stick to the things I'm really good at, which is education and analytics, horses and livestock. I, I'm honestly not the best grower. I kill more than I actually make holes. <laughs> I'm good with soil health. I've been bringing back our pastures too, but don't ask me to grow your vegetables. Just yeah. ask me for, for a goat or something. We're competent. What's that? My,
0: grandma, my grandmother was raised in, in a family that had sheep. Sweet. And then we transitioned in the 70s to um, um, cattle. And she would always say, you can make a cattleman you can make a sheepman a cattleman but you can't make a cattleman a sheepman that's so i don't right. think, I, I don't <laughs> think they're, <laughs> alive. they're very they have a lot of uh inter- yeah, cattle are pretty hardy so that's a yes hard, goats are pretty i think they're pretty hardy too so anyways yeah but i was thinking when you were talking about analytics this is one of the things i struggle with with ag tech and um all these new technologies that are pretty cost-prohibitive to a farmer or a rancher. Yes. And gather all this data, mm-hmm. and oftentimes the farmer rancher is actually has the burden of, um, of sort of getting that company up and going. They get the bulk of the charge, and you know damn well down the road that that company is going to use all that analytics and make a gob of money off of it. Mm-hmm. But it's not necessarily um, – being translated back into a positive for the farmer and rancher that are um have the burden of the cost of implementing the program. Yeah. So you have you seen that? And what do you think some of the steps that we need to take to make it more equitable for farmers, even though they're not as technically advanced, but they are the ones that are sort of creating the data that are making other people, it seems like we're just redoing the conventional food system, but in the digital era. So what we're doing is we're once again making creating middlemen that are taking all the value out of what the farmer and the rancher are producing, just on a digital scale. And I think that there's probably enough for everybody up the supply chain to make pretty good money. But I always my my thought is it should most of the on a, most of that. It should come from where it's originated from, where the bulk of the the information is being generated, and it should have a it should have a pretty positive benefit to the person that's generating that data. What are, what are your thoughts, or am I completely out of the? Uh, no,
1: um, so I think so. we I think it depends. So, data is a really broad word, and I think it depends on type of data. So, what I see a lot of is you said software is about. Um, software related to crops production, um, different things for management of practice, and um, some of them are real. And 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 just you know, I'm I'm only been exploring this for the last year so my answer won't be as polished today as it may be a year from now because i'm really actually trying to wrap my head around everything you just said so i would say a lot of the things i see whether it's here's how to get your uh here's how to you know sell your meat direct to consumer online through our platform it to here's a software that can help you better manage you know your production your your what's your planning rotation patterns and track things over time all of which is data right meat that's selling cuts of meat types of meat where things are planted why they're planted what's put on them um application of use. So all of that's really important information. You can dimensionalize that in so many ways. And then there's there's other types of data that might be that I'm starting to play with as it relates to like even some of these um, the the data around, like, you know, your animals as it relates to when they're born, what they're fed, where they're raised to when they're harvested. And i I don't f- see just from my initial analysis, I don't know if they're as cost effective as they should be for and or easy to use as they could be given the amount of work that they require in order to be viable. So it's kind of like what you're saying. It's like the the end user which is usually the producer or the rancher or the farmer is putting a lot of effort into it and they may not be getting everything back out of it whether it's lack of understanding of use support or a variety of things so um i think that there's a lot of room for innovation because there's also the the term in terms of like you know ag tech where you're talking data and things to do you know you're you're talking you know things as cool as interstellar where we have you know. Dr- which we have we have driverless tractors and you're using AI and drones and everything like that. Like that is coming, vertical farming. Um, so there's like different pools. and I'm and when I look at like, well, what are we going after, right? which is this really big, fantastic stuff to who is supposed to use it, there's a big gap between uh, cost, of what it is, but also understanding of how to implement it. And so, trying to wrap the head i'm really trying to wrap my head around that and saying well is there a better solution right so everything that i'm doing right now like i'm you know whether it's a operational use case whether it's a marketing use case in terms of e-commerce for some someone that may have that ability um, to just general content consumption and where consumer where consumers are ultimately kind of gravitating towards what their understanding is or isn't. I build everything in Google Data Studio. There are so many use cases of it, and there are more powerful tools like Tableau and Microsoft Power BI. I don't use those because A have not trained myself to, but B, <laughs> Usually they're like, again, it's like the robust, right? It's like, what do you need versus what might be too much? There isn't anything I haven't been able to manage to create in data studio with, um, whether it's, uh, you know, if it's something like Google analytics or paid campaigns, um, or even like I said, some of the things I'm working on that are more operational. I'm like, well, you have a software, we can do a data export. I need an Excel sheet. Let's go. Um, that I can't, you know, make a little bit more digestible and at least show someone something or give them a better understanding of what they're looking for. Because a lot of what I'm hearing is I need to understand this or I want to understand that. And it's not so much about, you know, and a lot of it relates to audience, um, like who their audiences are, who, where, what, where, how they're finding them, who they are, how they're finding them, what are they wanting from them and where they might need, and, and what then, of course, like just the general question is, well, okay, now that we know who they are, what they want, uh, what do we do next? And so then the next question is, well, you know, it could be a variety of things. It's like, well, you know, you might want to, if you're wanting to hire more people, well, let's, you know, you can do this, this, and this, because that might help you increase, you know have hire more staff or onboard more partners. If you want to understand what content your audiences want from you, well then, you know, because you can even you can even pull in social data. You can pull on in Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, LinkedIn, pull in every any, anything and everything you want can be put into a dashboard way better than their own analytics. And so um it's like, well, you know what? You think that you know, your people are using the terms, like, let's go to beef, right? Cause you're into regenerative ag and grass fed. So let's talk about that. Cause I have date all day long about pork and beef and um, a really big topic is everyone thinks that, you know, using the term like uh, sustainability is big with uh, those that want to buy meat. It's like, Oh, this, this meat was sustainably raised via regenerative practices nobody looks for that <laughs> they, okay hallelujah i'm that they understand two years. <laughs> what they what they look for and what they type is um how do I buy, you know, like how to buy, um, how do I buy meat from a farmer? Like buying direct from farms and then add the state. Uh, They look for, you know, they do look for the term grass fed. Um, They don't know the difference between grass fed, grass finished. They do not understand the labeling of all natural, like the labels, they don't search by those. Um, they do use the term organic, but not as much as they use the keyword grass fed or buy grass fed beef. Buy, you know, local, buy pork locally. They don't understand if the if the pork is pasture raised or raised in a house. Which you know, it th- there are all these little nuances that a few kind of key people on the internet start to make you don't really see that in mainstream volume and it, it can vary depending on the, the, the positioning. Of the product. But, um, in general, you know, I think the, the largest thing that I've, I've seen, and this is from my own data and having trying to been hacked five times by activists, I will, I can tell you, um, I wrote a post three years ago and I've updated it every time I learn more called Humanely Raised, Humanely Slaughtered. It's time to, to talk about it. And it isn't about, you know, it's not being overly unethical. I go through Temple Grandin. I talk about, you know, you know, misconception and feedlot. And one of the articles that you read talked more about that too. And um it is, it it's it gets 1500 reads a month, month. So it, it it took time to grow, but I even this year, I updated it with pictures of us doing a farm kill of one of the hogs, just so people could actually see what a farm kill looks like. And I outline. I'm like there, you know, it's like, this is small scale. Here is what the USD practices. This is why, you know, um, you know, Harvesting or slaughter, whatever you want to call it, in the US is far more humane than outside because of Temple Grandin practices. And here's some things to consider that you don't know about. And then I talked about some other things internationally that people do in terms of, you know, the mobile butcher units and a few other things. But, you know, at the end of the day, like once I was able to participate in the harvesting of my own meat, I really didn't have a problem with it. Like the, the thing that freaked me out the most were the hogs trying to get the entrails of their little their little little brother that just ended up being taken out. <laughs> and That's I'm cool. sorry if that offends anyone. Like that was like, I was like, oh my gosh, they're like, they're, they're woo, they're crazy. But um, <laughs> you know, no, it was little things. And so it, it was so in that, and then I've seen that, like, you know, visiting larger places and getting to know more people that do large volume meat. And you see how it, it's gone at scale. I, I'm like oh and and it's like no these these are your animals aren't tortured before they're put down and here's all the reasons why and you know like bruising and, and anything like you can but a lot of people don't seem to believe that so there's a lot of trying a lot of uh search around like the end of life process of meat that I've been seeing lately like again firsthand of my own stuff and other things I work on and then the demand and searching for like Buying meat directly, as well as like local food, has and it tripled since COVID. Has kind of been to our two key themes, and so when you know, like a friend here said, "Well, I'm think you know she is a beef, pork, and chicken CSA." She's like. I can't keep up with the demand, but I'm afraid it's going to die off. So I'm hesitant to, um, you know, buy more animals, right? So if I can say, well, you know, I've use Google search trends on some of these topics. I'm like, okay, so here's where this is over time. It's still growing. So if you think that on the short term, this would be valuable for you in the next year or two, I would say it's a pretty safe bet. After that, just be a little weary because we, we know that consumer demand ebbs and flows. Um, for what they want. Like right now, cauliflower is on a downtrend and they they got sick of cauliflower, but now chickpeas are pretty awesome. They have way better texture than cauliflower. So, you know, whether it's meat, you know, like, you know, if it's whether it's, you know, demand for meat or if it's demand for plant-based products there's always this ebb and flow i know in terms of just talking about consumer i'm not talking b2b i know we're kind of going broad cuz you didn't give me questions so i'm doing the best i can <laughs> You're doing but, good. okay but um <laughs> so kind of looking at where that paces and i'll tell you like you know if you want to talk about beef compared to plant-based people mix people eat meat and people eat plant-based foods, usually because they have a food sensitivity or an allergy. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think my only caveat is when plant-based people start to demonize, you know, animal ag, I, I think that's just a little too unethical because it's like you can market plant-based meat alternatives without, you know, saying cattle or killing the planet and fueling misinformation because we both know it is not that simple to to make that comparison.
0: Yes. Especially Great. with that
1: study that just came out about how the industrial crops lead to just as much um, emissions as beef. So let, let's oh, yeah. just, let's be realistic.
0: Um, so I don't want to harp on this, and I'm not trying to put you in a bad spot, but when you may when you started when you started becoming more in the dirt under your nails type of agriculture, did you find that? maybe you had some preconceived notions about the role of technology in agriculture. And I find that a lot of consumers seem to think that the fix for agriculture is It's a lack of understanding of technology. And I think there is a certain amount of that. But I also think that we're way too quick in our natural ecological systems to try and apply technology when we probably just need to apply observation, biomimicry, yeah. and, and just sort of sit back. And I think the active, the active applying technology actually, in some cases, in natural systems, sometimes makes it worse.
1: Well, I think um, it's. I actually just pulled a quote off of something you wrote um, for something that I'm working on that I think kind of gives a better balance to that. I think that we are at risk of training one problem for another, and while there is lack of understanding of technology maybe on the producer side, um, from what I've also seen, and I've been to Ag Expo in California and seen some amazing things, but again, there's a barrier. For the things that I think would work, the cost is very high and so unless that's subsidized somehow for adoption for for producers to bring that in as a viable alternative um there there's there's that but also useful technology that can do the the job of what people do in in ag is is i think that's the other misnomer so you'd written about um you know, if you're developing solutions to feed the future, you know, to feed people in the future and you don't have someone that owns a ranch, owns a cow, owns a horse or even a chicken, I'm quoting you, then <laughs> you are pretty much doomed to fail. Right. So I i think that's what I've seen. It's not that technology can't help. I think technology is, is it's it, you, we need it because at the end of the day, we have to feed the world and. That is coming up very quickly. It's why I like to reference the movies. You know, we have all these apocalyptic movies like Interstellar is probably one of the best ones to look at. But at the end of the day, you know, our planet was dying and ever, what they needed? Farmers. We didn't have food. So um, and to grow food at scale with more limited resources, because this is what I hear from every producer. They're asking me to do more with less. And I, I that formula doesn't work. So Vertical farming, growing our plants in, you know, going up versus going out. That makes sense. Is that going to work for animals? Not so much. I've heard that discussion being had is, you know, I'm like, you want to raise more meat and use less land. Okay, it's kind of an oxymoron. Why? So you can meet the density of people. Well, you're just training one problem for another. So if you pull the animals off the land, yet you develop it, well, what's the environmental impact of that development? So again, like I'm new in this area. I am still learning. I I read as much as I can. That's evidence-based, really good research that can be put out. And so I think that um, when I came into this, I knew we need technology. I don't know how. Um, there are some really good use applications like using drones to monitor uh, crops, which they do in California. So if there's an area that needs water, they can trigger that area versus just blindly irrigating a bunch of stuff that maybe doesn't need it when there's a water shortage. So it's it needs to come farther. But like, it's like some of the berry harvesting machines, they have a 50%, what was it 50, 60% accuracy over a, a human, like they damage the fruit. So that's not exactly the most effective thing. You can't put, a machine in a field to harvest berries of which then only half the crop you could is sellable that that does so i think that it's how do we create solutions for those that produce food that are uh you know that are that are adoptable because i've met some very tech savvy farmers out there you know like i'm like well what and it's like when i even even my marketing strategy changes because they're like Look, I use this YouTube for this and I get this off podcast. I am not sitting and down and reading a thousand word article. Like, I'm like, okay, you guys are on it. Like, you know, because whatever. And it's like, so I would say that there's great use cases now i think there's a lot of room for innovation and improvement and um i think the big guys with the big names have to come to the table um because at the end of the day and and we as consumers like again it's like you i almost feel like sometimes as a producer you fall in the middle because that's where you fall in the supply chain but consumers that do the driving and the buying well you know what and it's like all the trendy stuff like shop your values well you know what? I love to buy locally raised meat, even if it costs more. But at the same time, I like to put gas in my car. Well, Exxon's a pretty big company. I need gas because I need my truck to drive places and haul animals and things like that. So it's kind of that balance, but it would be nice to see some of the larger names. And and I do not mean to upset everybody, but you know, if I just, it's like, I read a statistic recently. It's like a, a farmer gets, I don't know if it was accurate. I just think it was a really good um example of a farmer gets seven cents for every dollar on a chicken you, you want them to do better we'll give them more money well and it's like well where does that come from because consumers are already paying premium prices so could larger companies give them i think we have to pay our farmers better that's that's one of my standpoints so you want them to adopt technology you want them to use this you want them to use that well someone's got to subsidize it because current rates for like doing food at scale, v- very hard. Yep. I don't know if that even answers the question. Cause like, I feel like technology is it's an interweave to the way it's like, yeah, agriculture is still pretty analog, you know, and we can move it forward and we can drive it forward and we should, but what ways can we do that? You know, and how do we do that in a way that's going to work? Because again, are we trading one problem for another?
0: Well, I have a a philosophical thing about it. I feel that it's good. And I think that we're going to find technologies that lend themselves to agriculture and sort of are intuitive to agriculture. Mm -hmm. But I feel a lot of technical technical solutions um, sever us from our relationship with nature and ecosystems. And I think that as a species on the earth, it's really important that we maintain that direct connection as much as possible. Yeah. Why consumers can't have it all the time. I think it's important that the, there are a, there is a subset of people that are actively sort of have, have that uh, species to species relationship. And I think that we do this in a lot in modern society. And I think it's just because the information age is so um, new but we tend to sever ourselves a lot from the ecosystem that we are very much part of to the point that where we talk about it, like we're standing outside of it and that's not the case. And I was going to say, there is a really good book about this called the wizard and the prophet about Mm -hmm. and I can't remember. I can never remember the other guy's name, but it's a fascinating book. If you ever get a chance to read it or anybody. so that was, that was intense. I I, I really enjoy your perspective. And uh, it's interesting to see how short, I mean, we, we have a lot many thoughts at parallel and you got there in a short amount of time. I've been thinking about it all my life. So, <laughs> so I, I do want to have, I do want to have a fun conversation because I see this as a big part of your life is sure. uh, you seem to have uh, really taken to uh, horses and uh, different yeah you have a, it seems to be a hobby or a passion of yours. So I just, uh, I, I personally love horses. I'm not as horsey as a lot of ranchers, but uh, no, I, I do like that interaction. I like that They so much mimic your feelings at any given time that you, you you give them that. And so, and I think it goes, horses and people reflect a lot from each other. So I was just, uh, I just wanted to ask a question about your, uh, your passion for horses and where it's taking you and what you enjoy about it.
1: So, you know, I think some of the best ways to educate people. So you talked about the natural cycles of land, biomimicry. So that's exactly how I operate my little, I'm just going to call it a slice of heaven. I'm on a ranch that is much more established. Um, like I said, I've just been blessed that they allowed me to be there because we just were able to come to an understanding. Um but that's part of the reason it's working is because we're very slow. We're very methodical. I don't have a lot of fancy mechanics. Like I do, I mean, the, the, the coolest thing that I do right now is I do, you know, soil tests of different areas. So I know what I'm working with. So I can, you know, I, I you know, I, I add, you know, it's like, I have a really big problem with nitrogen. I have a big problem with, I'm sorry, phosphorus and zinc deficiencies in general. So, you know, it's like, I, I mail that into a lab because I want more than just a little little analog to- uh, you know, things saying, "Oh, you're down on this." I want facts, science about how do I make my soil better to grow, right? So, um, part of that is, you know, our is I've just kick it old school. So I'm like, right now we've got 12 alpacas, seven cows. Like we have some. We we will. When Snohomish County, sadly, you know, with COVID, there's been a lot of people that can't care for their animals, so they surrender them. So when it comes to livestock, I, we just will take it and you know we just give the county space but i'll you know it's like i'm we're rotating them around we're, we the alpaca poop was nitrogen rich cost about 10 bucks a pound and right now it's free <laughs> um so you know it's like the way we're we're just you know we go very i guess we go old school like so we have rotational grazing we move them around um same thing with the horses and so um because we have varieties of lives the different you know varieties of livestock. There's always cattle, but um, we predominantly have a horse facility, and we do everything from cutting to managed shooting. And it, it's unlike this is the last part of the West that's left in Western Washington. It's so <laughs> cool here, and and you know there's some of the like some of the best um, horsemen come through there because the ranch owner is a really established person in the Western horsemanship world. He you know he's laid at some really strong foundation. So and being able to learn. Um, horsemanship the right way is what I'm going to call it. And again, no disrespect to people that ride English or dressage. But when I walked onto the ranch, I'm like, everything I have learned about these animals is counterintuitive. I'm wrong. Like no wonder I nearly broke my back in a jumping accident. So um, I started with groundwork and I started to learn how to, you know, interact and be around horses. And I fell in love with it. And so, yeah, I, I, I bought a great mayor who is helping me rebuild my confidence and she can cut. She's a great you can rope off of her. You can do branding off of her. She's just a solid little horse. Um, and then I did another one. That's a rescue. That I post about all the time, Katie May, And um, you know, there's just something that again, talk about presence and grounding and, you know, they, they probably have saved me through COVID. And um, now, so I learned that there was like, there's been certifications for being an equine assisted coach and a therapist that I've been taking. So I've been working with women that are really stressed out um, during COVID because they are in roles where, you know, whether it's family and they are, you know, they've got kids and their job and the dogs and it's just, they're overwhelmed. Um, a couple of the women I've worked with, with the horses have been nurses who have been on the front lines and seen this from day one, and they just mentally are shattered because of the stress of always looking at this and navigating it. Um, you know, the mental health crisis is really, it's, it's real. Um, and then I learned that, you know, almost every nonprofit that does animal assisted therapy had a year long waiting list, whether it was kid or adult or there were no services. So I've started to do a lot of, again, like just um, equine assisted programs for women at the ranch. And that's in, you know, that's kind of how it it makes I make money. So um, I do analytics part-time and, you know, like, so not, you know, like what the, for the clients I have, I work about three and a half days a week. And the rest of the time I spend out on the ranch with the animals, A, so I can keep learning. Like I have this epic pasture revitalization project going that is just my obsession, but I also have the horses and um, then working with um, the women that I have that I meet just along the way by chance, and um, you know, I the plan for this year is to grow that more, especially, and then really scale it up once COVID is really behind us in another year, hopefully. Again, I'm not a predictor of viral <laughs> mutations, but um, that's kind of been it. So there's just something, and, and and the coolest thing about it, like you know, when you want to connect people with land and food bring them out to a ranch for two hours. And the first thing you do is put them with the horse. They pay a lot of attention because that's, that's a thousand pounds of, Oh my God, I could die. But <laughs> <laughs> not that my horses are crazy. They're either very social, but um, you see this just instant decompression. And then I'll start to show them around. It's like, yeah, well, you know, these are beef cattle and this is what, you know, this is how they eat. And they're like, oh, they have so much space. Oh, they don't look stressed at all. You're like, yeah, a lot of what you read online is, you know, is based on the sins of a few. It's not the majority of the many. So, you know, this is how they eat. This is a little bit more about them. And this, you know, and and they start to ask questions about, you know, things. That's why I put in the garden. So we've got I did blueberries because they do great out here, and we have a whole strawberry patch that I did up a hillside without a lot of work. And then we've got some really cool places where we're growing different veggies more than the twelve veggies that everybody in this side of Washington grows. I'm sorry, I'm going to promote my ability to grow other things. It's kind of awesome. And then you start to you you talk them through it. It's like, um, and and then you see this light go on. They're like, oh, I kind of get it. Oh, that's kind of interesting. So instead of like beating people over the head with, oh, the food you eat, you know, like with misinformation or partial truth or partial fact. I'm like, come out to the ranch and I will at least show you a piece of this. And, you know, no, we don't butcher our animals in front of people, but, you know, they can see how things live. And and you and as they ask questions, usually you have got something that serves an, as an example. So it's like, you know, it is pretty hard to, you know, make enough blueberries to fill that pint. And then you, they're like, well, why do the ones that, you know, I just picked off this tree taste differently than the ones in the store? I'm like, well, cause that's a different varietal, even the stuff that's in the frozen section. Well, that's, that's a different varietal too. There's more than one type of blueberry. There's more than one type of apple back. There's 120 pieces <laughs> of apples. You've probably had four. So, you know, it, I love to be able to use the horses as the entryway to a larger conversation on food because everybody loves horses. And goats are still really trendy, especially goat yoga. I'm going to test that out this summer too, see how that goes. I'm (laughs) like, you want a little goat crawling over you? I can make that happen. So... You know, using something of interest to spark a dialogue is great. And then once you kind of and then once they get talking, you start to understand how they view it or what they're hearing and why they might believe something. And then I think from getting that firsthand information, you can then start to create stories and and provide um, an alternative to what they might be consuming. Because, you know, I'm like, it's like that quote that goes around that I see. It's like, don't ask Google, ask a farmer. I'm like, well, we need to make Google smarter about farming. So somehow we got to do that. So that's, that's kind of where it's at. It's um that's what we're doing like on our little slice of heaven on a much larger established place. And, you know, it's, you know, I learn every day. I unlearn every day uh, from every conversation, from research. And that's why, like, I always say, I don't care how you produce or raise food. The fact that you are feeding people, like you have to respect uh, People that are actually doing that work because it is hard. Like it is for the little bit I do, I'm sometimes exhausted. Can you? Can I can't imagine people that produce, you know, hundreds or thousands of acres. It is. I think people just think it's simple, but it's not. So, well, so I've you, been very humbled.
0: You have the added benefit of being like most farmers and ranchers, and having to have another gig to keep your passion going.
1: But I have the the gig, the data pays for the horses. Food, yes. So I do have my off ranch and my on ranch um, (laughs) jobs. I have to because even you know, like I said, like once eventually, like our goal is to buy our own place. And but even that is hard because of the cost of land out here. I mean, acreage is thirty-one thousand to sixty-seven thousand dollars per acre that is usable. So if you want ten acres, well, that's three hundred to seven hundred thousand dollars that's like a whole house and a ranch and something somewhere else plus then yeah. some um so it's it's just so in order to have something that's usable that people will come to, like, that's, that's the trade off. And I don't think I would ever live any other way. So I will always have the education that I can provide through what I have on my little slice of heaven. But I will always do data and analytics, because if I can help someone better understand their business, well, then maybe then they know how to address what people are asking of them. You know, it's like, from animal welfare to sustainability to how they're mitigating, you know, lessening their carbon footprint. Like that's, I almost feel like, you know, you talked about data and technology. I think um, really, I think people, ranchers specifically, it's like, how do I join this conversation in a meaningful way? Well, first, if you know who's looking at you and what they want to know, you can start there that's something I know how to build out for you in two days, provided you have analytics set up. If not, we have to set that up. And then we have to kind of start the gathering and after six weeks, I can build that for you in two days. Cause then there's enough of a data pool to pull from. So that's why I'm like, yeah, it's, it's not as complex as I think people think they need. Um, You know, if you have no technical skill for building a website, like, um i i always and people like what i mean i don't think that some of the platforms out there designed for farmers specifically are that great Uh, (laughs) because again they own your data it's very limited they're hard to use i'm like man just go with something that's wordpress powered if you don't have wordpress let's go with wix if you don't and if you want e-com go with shopify that's really all you need wordpress wix and shopify and some google that's funny
0: (laughs) the desert mountain grass beef is all run through shopify which is amazing
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like they, there's like that to me is useful technology that is easy to understand. There's free database and use cases of how to do something. Like, I don't think something you, you don't, you don't make, I don't like things that you are overly dependent on. I want things that work together so that you can build scale and efficiency, just like we're supposed to do in food in order to feed people, right? Scale efficiency.
0: (laughs) So well, the interesting thing is Mikayla and I had a nice talk about how this podcast was going to go down, what we're going to talk about, and it, I'm going to totally throw it to the wind because uh, I want to go back to something you said about mental health. Yeah. Animals and food. Yeah. And uh, I think that's a huge thing that people are not considering. Um, is, and it, talks, it comes back to that severing ourselves from nature. Yeah, I think that our food has so much to, the food that we're eating that we have now that's available to us on mass quantities, the stuff that fills up the middle of the grocery stores and the lack of uh, interaction with nature has really thrown our species in this huge, I'm fortunate, I live on a ranch, I have access to good food, but I think that, that and I think that maybe this is what you found and why you, it drew you to move and change your p- pattern is because it's hard to have good mental health when you aren't exposed to good whole foods and like fresh air, basically. I
1: think yeah, the when you don't have a decompression space, um, having I and believe me, I've lived in big cities, New York, Los Angeles. I even was in London. And, you know, as people learn that they're like, why did you end up out here? I'm like, because this is as close to civilization as I can get at this point. This is big for me. This is still modern and not that rural. Um, And it was because like, you know, some people are very uncomfortable with their thoughts and looking at how crazy busy our lives are as just city dwellers. And this is coming from my own experience. But um, when I started getting to the ranch and I was like there after two days, I was like, oh, I'm calmer. Oh, I'm not anxious. Oh, I'm not having all these racing thoughts in my head and all this crazy mind chatter. And it was, well, why? I'm like, well, because it's quiet and I'm sleeping. There's no background noise. It's dark. It's, you know, it was, you know, you just, your body, na- my body would just naturally be like, we're going to sit here and be good. So I think that there's, you know, there's, uh, I just recently wrote a post over on our ranch blog about, you know, how a, a really great study. It's like you spend two hours a week outside and how you can reset your nervous system just through breath work, like calmly breathing and being present two hours outside can completely retool where your mind is and, and really help you. So, um, I, I we are very disconnected in that sense. Like to me, I, I love, you know, there's, there's always good treats in the middle aisle, but you know, it's, I'm never too busy to make my food. I make the most of it in bulk, but I cook my meat fresh every day. Cause I don't reheat meat. That's nasty. There's my food bias. I'm like, Mm-mm. you, you, you want steak, you grill that fresh. So, yeah. so that, that I think is really, really important in terms of um, the, um, you know, mental health is taking time to stop, taking time to walk away from our day-to-day jobs and business lives. And and that can be something for anyone. So whether they like to hike, they don't have to go to a ranch, they don't have to farm, but you need to be outside, walk around a river, walk down a path that isn't, you know, right next to a freeway where there's tons of noise pollution. Just, um, yeah, we, we kind of sometimes have to start by stopping and, and not a lot of us do that. And, you know, I've seen people during COVID that use COVID to really overhaul their lives and to build better balance in, but I've also seen ones that kind of became prisoners in their minds and they sat at their desks in their houses and ate even worse. And, And then they're like, well, I don't know why I gained 20 and 30 pounds and I'm even more depressed and more overweight. It's like, sweetie, you could have gone outside. Well, no, I couldn't. I had to work my job. I'm like, sweetie, you work at a desk. You lost a three hour commute. Like, you know, and that was, again, that was just a mental prison that they kind of constructed for whatever story was kind of floating or reason they felt. And, and you know, so, and I see that it's like 50-50. So how do we, um, you know, I think mental health is a really big thing. I think that if you learn to disconnect and slow down, especially since we, you know, everything got shut down. Um, I've seen people do come for the better, but then I've also seen people who couldn't accept that level of uh, quiet and um, filled it with, oh God, I got to be here, at my technology, Facebook, work, this, Zoom, meeting, meeting, meeting. And um, it's it's left them worse for the wear. So, you know, I just encourage balance and everything, Balance in your eating, balance in your purchases and consumption. and that includes the balance in your work. And it's I, while it sounds simple, overly simple, I think it's the hardest thing for
0: people to do. Yep. So um let's talk about your one of your, your things on your profile is ag investing. Yes. And what is your what is your what what are you looking at? What do you find investable in agriculture right now? What
1: well I'm not doing what it's nothing that fancy. I know there's ag tech and everything. But you know what? I've been meeting some really amazingly talented producers in this area. Well, one that raises pork and sheep and goats for meat. And she's got a really cute boutique CSA. She's a butcher and does really cool stuff and custom cutting. And so I gave out of just money that I have from my business. I invested in her. Um, I gave her capital and some resources to help expand out her little farm operation, so that she and also business guidance, so that she can um, she could expand her farm, but also then be you know she, the goal is to um, qualify for FSA loans and grants, so that she can build a custom cut and wrap shop out of shipping containers, which is pretty pretty badass right there. Nice. Um, and then another girl, she's, um, I think that there are still women that are very underrepresented in ag. And I mean, there's great people in ag, but I like to see a diverse, I want to see more women with resources because I don't see them having it. So I invested in another woman that is a, an amazing horseman and who's been training and teaching me. And um, it, was a, it was a variety of cash but and capital for her to grow her business, but it was also um, this was fun. I I bought one of the fanciest ass horses I have ever seen in my life, and I'm like, I will never ride you, you crazy. But you are cool to watch. So because that's really what she needed. She needed business guidance. I mean, I'm not a horse person. I'm not a horse trainer. I don't want to be that. She can build her own name. But I'm like, what you do need is someone to kind of teach you how to run a business, get it going, how to interact with people more, and then the number one tool you need is a really nice horse. So we did that. Um, And then the other one that I'm working with is she wants to do fiber. So it's like, well, how do we, you know, doing some market research out how do we, could you build a, you know, like more of a boutique fiber business, you know, wool and Angora, things like that. So I didn't go with technology. I've just gone with better business foundation and teaching them to really believe in themselves. So they go after their dreams, have their voices heard because You know we're again we're i'm i said i'm lucky to be on a place where there are great horsemen but these guys are retiring out they are a dying breed and you know they are and i'll preface right now like i'm a mixed race woman everyone that is i've learned the majority of what i've learned from from people that are white and i know this is a really big time to talk about inclusivity and everything else but i i haven't experienced um Hate or bigotry when it came when it's come to the people that I've learned from I've always been accepted regardless if I'm a woman or a woman of color. Um, so I, there's another side to that story. The only place I've ever gotten any hate is from activists, which those you know that's a whole other thing. But that's what I do in investing. I invest my knowledge, my time, and some and money into women that I think can, can continue agriculture forward in a really good way because. Um, A lot of them are just getting city jobs and not really leveling into talent. because of lack of resource, lack of support. Um, Even with uh, the company that I have, like all the people that work for me are women that also have ranches and work on ranches. So like my web developer, she's on a cattle ranch in Texas. One of my editors, cattle ranch in Kansas City. Uh, One of my newest editors who you know, I think, what is her name, Jocelyn? Oklahoma, I don't quite know. But they live in smaller rural communities. And I, you know, you can dig, thank you, LinkedIn. I'm finding them now because they're on there but that's how we do it. So it's like, you've got your on ranch and your off ranch, but even just by like the work that I have available through my client, giving that to other women in ag that are ranchers in, in addition to other skills, that's investing in women. So I think that we come up, we're brilliant. We do things with scrappy resources and we have a lot of passion. So I really like to, that's the way I can do it. And if I could ever build some cool technology platform that would help women in ag everywhere, I would do that too. Nice. (laughs) I just don't know what it would be on there because everybody has different needs.
0: (laughs) Well, I think that um, it's intuitive. I I think we're more aware of it now, but ranch women have always been, and farm women have always been the foundation of any operation. And it's never not been that way. So Mm -hmm. I think that, and, you're going to find that there's some really scrappy, savvy women out there all over rural America that have lots of drive and lots of uh, lots of power to innovate and just really our work, not to say it, not made it in bad ways. And so that sort of makes you like a uh, black swan in the fact that um, so many people come to me and say, I want to help you in agric- do this in agriculture. But they not they don't have they don't develop that pure relationship that e- relationship of equals. Mm-hmm. They're like I'm gonna pick your brain and then I'm gonna build business out of it and then as soon as that business takes off, then you're gonna be happy that you knew me. But right, you seem to like you're you're making long-term partnerships, mutually beneficial relationships, and uh, really rising the tide to everybody, which I have to commend you for. So, and uh, that. What you just explained is the approach that I think, if people want to jump into regenerative agriculture, yeah. into agriculture, that is the most successful re- approach that you can have to get people in agriculture to trust you and to work with you. And and um, anyways, that's uh, yeah. that was just my thought. So anyways. No,
1: it's a good thought. It's a good. I was
0: just happy to hear you. Uh, say that okay yeah. well i you said you gotta get going and, I uh, do. and, and it's been
1: so awesome yeah. talking with you hopefully someone yeah. finds us of value
0: <laughs> one thing before you leave sure what is the future what what do you see as the future of agriculture
1: it's gonna have to be co-created and we're all gonna have to come to the table and have some very very hard conversations <laughs> and hopefully we can be adults enough and put aside our own personal biases to uh um, to um, make some some decisions that benefit the many versus the few.
0: Right on. Well, I'm sorry, we ran out, of time this has been a great conversation. So appreciate your time and uh, uh, maybe we'll uh, talk later.
1: Definitely. I'm gonna'm I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this back on you and have a conversation with you because I think talking about nature and biomimicry and connection is something we got to go deeper into.
0: Right. Cool. Well, we'll talk to you in a bit. Thanks, Rich. Bye.